Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Vanity Fair. Well, this might be the shortest GOP primary season in a very long time. Casey, is there any wild card out there? If there is a wild card out there, Brian, it's not anything we can really see right now. That is Casey Hunt, Chief National Affairs Analyst for CNN. She anchors two daily shows, Early Start and State of the Race. And she's just back from both Iowa and New Hampshire. And I'm Brian Stelter. Welcome to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, we are going inside the GOP primaries, talking about Donald Trump's win in Iowa, and looking ahead to New Hampshire. So, Casey, you don't think Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are the wild cards in this race? It's Donald Trump's to win? I have to tell you, Ryan, it is extraordinarily hard to see how either one of them uh, stop Donald Trump's march to the nomination. It It is just, at this point... Obviously, anything is possible in New Hampshire. New Hampshire has surprised us all before. It's part of why it's one of political reporters' favorite places to be because unpredictable things do happen. And I've always loved it for that reason. It can really change the trajectory of a race. But in this case, it's a pretty isolated situation inside the rest of the nominating contest. And even if Nikki Haley were to win and put a little bit of a dent in Trump's inevitability, I still have trouble seeing uh, how that really changes the ultimate outcome here, especially uh, considering, you know, Trump was so dominant in Iowa. Well, it seems to me there's a frame war underway. There's a narrative war underway. But here's the counterargument. That means half of the Iowa caucus goers did not want to vote for him, did not want to support the 2020 nominee from the GOP. And actually, he's quite weak as a result. Clearly, you don't buy that. Well, I think the reality is that in every other Republican primary, while you never saw anyone that dominant before either, right? I mean, there was never somebody in Iowa who got the margin that Trump got, at least in the modern in modern times. And yet, by the end, the party had a strong uh, nominee. Now, Iowa wasn't always the place that, you know, ultimately picked that person. Um, but that is an argument that I'm hearing from particularly people who don't want to see Republicans, who don't want to see Trump be the nominee because they think he's a loser in a general election. I just I think there's even some some acknowledgement from those people when they make that argument that they know uh, that it's still it's just going to be so difficult to overcome his dominance. Mm. And what about the idea uh, that Iowa is so unrepresentative of the American people writ large and, and even the GOP? Um, 
Did it feel when you were freezing in Des Moines like it was a little <laughs> bit of a waste? I don't want to say a waste of time. I know it's a beautiful American political tradition, but was a part of you just thinking, come on, what are we doing carrying this much about 100,000 GOP primary voters in a single state? Well, Brian, you are asking, you know, this is my fourth Iowa caucus. I am a traditional campaign reporter um, to the core, and I love this stuff no matter what. So you might you might get more luck on that with another person you're asking these questions of. But I do think <laughs> that you're... And by the way, whatever we were doing in Des Moines, it was mo- way more than freezing. I will say even everyone in yes. Iowa who yes. normally mock us for not being able to handle the cold when we come in every four years, they understood this time, nope, we're all staying inside because you were, you were way more than freezing when you stepped outside. Um, now, it used to be that... Um, Iowa was a place where somebody like a Donald Trump might actually get tripped up the most, right? I mean, historically, um, mm. you know, there are many things about Donald Trump that are not conservative with a small C the way that the Republican Party traditionally was conservative. It's just that the whole game has really changed um, since then. That it's much more Trump's party yes. and everything about him has been accepted now by his voters in a way that it wasn't almost a decade ago. Right. And I mean, there was an interview in the last, um, you know, 24 hours since Iowa. Ben Carson was on the air on Fox News comparing Donald Trump to King David. Mm. In your interviews in Iowa, in in your time in Des Moines and beyond, did you get that same vibe from voters? Uh, What what did you hear that surprised you or stood out to you uh, before you flew to New Hampshire? Um, There is a difference between how people feel about and act around Donald Trump than there is to how they act around what I would, you know, refer to as like a normal political candidate. And Uh, the reality is this has been on display since 2015. I mean, it was something that, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I was, I was there when he came down that golden escalator. I went to some of his first rallies in Iowa in the summer of 2015. And the reaction to and treatment of Donald Trump has always been different. It's it, it's um, it's more like how people respond to Taylor Swift than how they respond to more traditional uh, types of candidates. Obviously, there are major uh, differences between <laughs> Taylor and Donald Trump, but the celebrity of it uh, and just the way people are captivated by who he is. They want to be close to him. It's just a much different feeling. And you see it in small ways, too, even when people aren't screaming for him. You know, the the clothes that they wear, um, the way that they talk about uh, about who he is as a person, um, about how it's 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 almost like it's very, very personal to them. And therefore, a lot of the legal troubles and things that he he has faced instead of being, you know, death knells for him have been instead things that have solidified support from his core supporters. I'm not talking about, you know, look, the people that are ultimately going to decide this election, they are swing voters, they are independent voters in a handful of states. And none of what I'm saying applies to those people. But if, you, if you're trying to understand why it is that, you know, 50% plus one of Iowa voters went for him, this is why. The, the Nikki Haley event I went to in Iowa, yeah, it was they, they had packed the house, right? They, they know how to do that. It's tra- traditionally, a traditional campaign knows how to, they, they call it crowd building, right? Like they know how to get enough people to a place to make sure it looks full, that, that the cameras get, you know, the right view of people being excited about the candidate. But also it, it, it comes apart as quickly as it comes together, right? So the signs that go up right before the event, this happened in the case of the Haley event at the Drake Diner, the signs go up, right? Uh, you know, hour before she gets there, they get the people to the parking lot. 
She comes through. She does one interview with a local station. She gets back in a car. A couple volunteers, they grab all those signs. They put them in the SUV. They drive to the next thing, right? Um, <laughs> it's just very different uh, than what you experience uh, when you are, are covering Donald Trump. So, Casey, as I'm hearing you describe the lay of the land, it's clear you're not one of those reporters that's, that's trying to create this appearance of a competition <laughs> that doesn't actually exist. <laughs> you're not one because there's often a, a, a criticism of the press that, you know, that we want a long, drawn out race, that we want this to go all the way to the convention, you know, that we want this to go on as long as possible. Sounds like you're not a believer this is going to go on <laughs> until the summertime. <laughs> well, look, Brian, I, I definitely, if I have a bias as a political reporter, it's to, you know, excitement and competition and, um, it's part of what I love about all of this. You know, I um, I got into this business because I love covering being part of our democratic system and the suspense is great and it's really fun. And we definitely always, and journalists generally, like we love a great story, right? And I think in this case, there was a lot of uh, interest and excitement around the idea that maybe there would be a contest here uh, if, you know, Nikki Haley had managed to eclipse Ron DeSantis in Iowa we would be having a different conversation. And, you know, look, I want viewers to watch my TV shows too, right? It's in television. It's like you, the, the, the more exciting the story is, the more likely people are going to stick with you. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, say that something exists when it doesn't. There is, of course, the factor in New Hampshire that undeclared voters can vote in the primary. And, and that really would be the major difference for uh, Nikki Haley in particular. But the fervor among the people who support Trump is still there. And, you know, one of the, one of my um, really good sources who I was talking to put it, said, well, you know, Donald Trump has space in front of people's homes on their lawns. His, you know, his neighbor had a banner hammered to the side of his house. There are people with Trump flags in their pickup truck beds. All the other candidates, they've got signs in the right of way, right? Places where you're allowed to put a yard sign that no one owns. Right. Uh, and it's just a fundamental difference. And it's true in New Hampshire. And it's true well beyond New Hampshire. When I say, you know, you're in Trump country, do you know what I mean? You can understand when you're driving around where Trump country is because you can see it. Right. And there's no Haley or DeSantis country. But I, I think here's here's the, the the obvious pushback or the obvious counter is that's a shrinking country. Yes, that's right. I don't think it is expanding beyond, you know, where what we've seen. And part of why Trump is over 50 percent is that the Republican Party itself has shrunk because Trump has pushed people out of the Republican Party, um, especially place in places like. So Polk County is the county where Des Moines is located. Mm-hmm. Um, Des Moines is a very it's actually I mean, uh, demographically, it's not a diverse place, but ideologically, it actually is. There's kind of two maps of Des Moines, one for where conservatives uh, hang out and, and, you know, during the caucuses and drink. The 801 Chop House um, is, you know, the, was the place to be, uh, for example, uh, on the night before the caucus. Um, and then there's the East Village in Des Moines where, uh, you know, if you are inside some of the cafes there, um, you'll see, you know, free Palestine and uh, messages about loving trans people, right? There are all kinds of people in Des Moines. It used to be that some of those people would vote in the Republican caucus, like mm-hmm. those people who used to be Republican are not Republicans anymore. So that has also really changed the makeup of the GOP, to your point. Um, and I think the theme that's emerging, one of the things we also learned in Iowa like the most telling piece of information, I think, from the whole thing was that 30 percent of, mm. uh, of Republican caucus goers told people in our entrance polls, 32 percent said that Donald Trump would be disqualified if he was convicted as a felon. 
in, you know, we didn't specify which trial exactly, but obviously he's got many. 32% of the most conservative electorate in all of America said that. And I had conservative sources who would be happy to see Donald Trump be president again, most definitely want to see a Republican in the White House and a Republican House and Republican Senate. They see that number and they're terrified because it it says to them, like, there's no way if Donald Trump doesn't have, you know, 90 percent of Republicans backing him, he has no shot at winning a general election, because ultimately that's what this conversation is about. It's about who's going to be president of the United States. And the the reality is it's going to be a relatively small group of independent voters who are going to decide, you know, whether whether they are willing to overlook all of Donald Trump's flaws because they're so upset about how the world has turned under Joe Biden. And I know Republicans look at Donald Trump and the biggest problem they have with him is that they think he's going to lose. Right. The people that are most invested in, you know, Republican governance of the United States, the people who worry about Senate and House races, Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell. Right. You ask him what he thinks, he'll say, well, the reason Chuck Schumer is majority leader is because Donald Trump lost two Senate seats in Georgia, right? So that trend and that sort of idea that the Republican Party is shrinking in the age of Trump, the Democratic Party, and particularly independents, the group of of people in America that declare themselves to be independent, uh, is widening, and that that presents incredible challenges for our two-party system. That's also why you're seeing so much chatter this year about third-party candidates, people like, I mean, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is polling remarkably high as a third-party candidate. The the No Labels uh, ticket is talking to, you know, talking about Joe Manchin and what, what about Nikki Haley if she drops out of the Republican uh, primary, et cetera. So there's an appetite for something to be different here because the Republican Party isn't home to as many people as it used to be. And that's also because of Trump. Let me fit in a quick break right here. Much more Inside the Hive in just a moment. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Hive. And welcome back to Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. We're talking about all things Trump and the GOP primaries with Casey Hunt of CNN. It seems to me we're going to see the Trump two-step now, where he speaks one way to his MAGA-based audience at rallies and speaks a different way in his victory speeches. Let me play a clip to show you what I mean. This is Trump on the stump the weekend before the caucuses, and here's what he was telling his voters about why they had to turn out to defeat the Democrats. But these caucuses are your personal chance to score the ultimate victory 
over all of the liars, cheaters, thugs, perverts, frauds, crooks, freaks, creeps, and other quite nice people. That's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. Right, so there's Trump saying, go vote for me to defeat the perverts and the crooks and the creeps and the liars. Like, that's very much a- an argument that that appeals to his base. But that's not, obviously not a general election, you know, it's not going to appeal to the independent swing voters you're talking about. And yet, wasn't it interesting, Casey, when he came out on Monday night, he was this, uh, well, I don't know, how would we describe how Trump talked, how he sounded on Monday night? He was, he was a toned down, quieter version. He was a different performer. We want to come together, uh, whether it's Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative. It would be so nice if we could come together and straighten out the world and straighten out the problems and straighten out all of the death and destruction that we're witnessing. That's practically never been like this. It's uh, just so important. And I want to make that a very big part of our message. (laughs) Yeah, no, 100 percent. You know, I think the other thing, too, is Trump is kind of a master of using different channels of communication, right? Like, He's on his uh, truth social platform saying and reposting a lot of things that, frankly, the reason he's not doing it on mainstream platforms is because he got kicked off of them. He's back on X now. But, um, you know, he knows that he's talking to an audience there that's that's different than the audience that would have to vote for him in a general election. Yeah, I think we have to see what he's doing with that. It's dehumanizing language one day, and then it's let's have un- unity the next day. Um, and do you buy the, the theory that's been out there that uh, people have not been exposed to Trump in a while, that average voters who are not in Iowa or New Hampshire have not been hearing from him, and that's perhaps why there's been a thaw and an increase in his favorabilities, even though they're still low? I think there's a couple things at play, but I think that's one of them. I think people, generally speaking, are tired of politics and they've turned it off. They've tuned it out. They find it to be um, demoralizing, frustrating, and just overall um, something that brings them down. And so their answer has been to turn off the TV, to look away, to not pay attention. I I think that there is also a very human um, way of, uh, you know, putting, putting bad memories to rest, right? Uh, you know, I mean, there are there are literally scientific studies about how we handle trauma in the past and our abilities uh, to forget, um, you know, bad things that have happened to us and to not to not focus on it simply so we can kind of go on with with the the uh, the day to day business of living and worry about those things. So I think that that Trump is in the past in a way that, you know, Joe Biden is not. Joe Biden is currently president of the United States. Um, right. And it's always tough when you're an incumbent president and the um people are, are, are taking a referendum on you and the job that you're doing right now. Um, that is like inherently more difficult. I think that said, I do think it's also true that we are going to be facing a much different reality in September of 2024 on all these questions. If Trump is the nominee, and that's going to be partly the job of the Biden campaign. It's part of why the Biden campaign keeps saying to people who are wringing their hands about the job they're doing to just wait. Now, I, I mean, I'm one of those people that, you know, I, I actually do. Um, I I question their decision to wait as long as they have in terms of like really engaging. Wait to do what exactly? Just the way in which they um, have, you know, the the top staffers are all still at the White House. They're not in Wilmington running the campaign. Um, the president is, um, you know, doing he's he's running a, what 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 would be referred to in olden older times as a, as a rose garden strategy, right? Giving speeches. Um, you know, being at the White House, running the country. Right, um, right. They've started, they've really changed in the last couple of weeks. I mean, you saw Biden go to Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Um, 
give a speech uh, it, at the Montgomery County Community College about uh, the, the democracy. And, you know, you've seen him. He was in Allentown the other day. Right. They're, they're starting, but they didn't start until, you know, the new year shifted over. And there have been a lot of Democrats in Washington who have said, like, hey, what, what's that about? Like, why are you wasting all this time? The White House will respond to that by saying, well, first of all, Trump's not formally the nominee. And when he is, people are going to, you know, it's going to start to register with people that, oh, this is actually a possibility. Like he might actually become a president again. And mm-hmm. when we get to September and that becomes a more real possibility for people, then the question will become, do people remember what happened under Trump in such a way that it becomes not just a referendum on Biden's term, but one on Trump's as well? And I think that the, the, the Biden campaign, you know, that their job is to uh, remind people of what that was like uh, it, over and over again and through their various messaging um, to try mm-hmm. and, and and make it that way. Yeah, again, it's the frame war. If it's, it's, is the election about Trump or is it about Biden? And yet I can't help but say to myself, wait a second, we're supposed to be talking about the New Hampshire primary and and what Nikki Haley is going <laughs> to do and what Ron DeSantis is going to do. And like, wait a second, I, shouldn't we pivot back to that? And I'm, I'm hearing you say, come on, like, let's let's be real. I mean, honestly, that's kind of how I feel. All right, let's hold that thought much more with Casey Hunt here on Inside the Hive in a minute. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, let's dive right back to our conversation with CNN's Casey Hunt about Iowa, New Hampshire, and the GOP primaries. There's a you know traditional charter flight from Iowa to New Hampshire, the night of the caucuses. So what was that? I think it was your first time on that flight. What was it like? Well, it was not my first. It was my first time on the press charter, but I have done that overnight flight three times now, four times. So I did it in 2012. I, I was on Mitt Romney's campaign plane overnight to New Hampshire. In 2016, oh, right. which was by far the most exciting one of these nights. Um, there was a press charter. You may have been on it, Brian. I don't know. Um, no. But there were also three campaign planes, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders. I was on the Bernie plane and there were two extremely close races in Iowa. There was the Democratic primary, which yeah. we weren't sure if Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton had won, but Bernie had come much closer than anybody thought he would to beating Hillary in Iowa. He was maybe going to win at that hour when we landed on the tarmac around probably 4.30 in the morning. Ted Cruz, of course, uh, would would defeat Donald Trump, but it was also very close. Ted Cruz's plane, Hillary Clinton's plane, and Bernie's plane all landed on the tarmac at the same time. There was so much suspense. It was honestly so much fun, right? Like, it was democracy at its very best. And honestly, I say all of this because it really provides a contrast to what I experienced earlier this week. Well, because this time it was us, a handful of reporters, a much smaller number than normally do this, and there was only one candidate and they didn't have any press on their plane. They had a really tiny plane. That was Nikki Haley. We ran into her. She was there because um, we were unavoidable. We were sitting there waiting uh, to walk out on the same tarmac. Ron DeSantis had gone to South Carolina. Donald Trump had gone to New York. Right. 
it, it's just, it wasn't the same. And it really kind of underscored just how much smaller the whole thing was in the face of trying to take on Donald Trump. I mean, the, the reason why there's no suspense now is because nobody was able to create it in the year that they were trying to run against Donald Trump um, is, is the bottom line, I think. Right. And then you have even after Iowa, Nikki Haley being interviewed by your colleague, Dana Bash, about uh, E. Jean Carroll and the, the case against Trump. And Nikki Haley demurring, avoiding it, saying she hasn't been following it. So even now, as she tries to have some surprise outcome in New Hampshire, she's not taking that full frontal attack against Trump. She's not. And that's because Nikki Haley, at the end of the day, if she wants to win the Republican nomination, she's got to win Republicans. And Republicans don't respond to that. I mean, this is the vice that they've been in all the way along, right? It's true yeah. that you can't beat Trump without taking him on. But it's also true that if you do take him on, you anger a massive segment of the Republican base. I mean, this is this is the story, Brian. I mean, I hate to say it, but I mean, this is every day when I was covering Capitol Hill during the Trump administration, I covered the entire thing uh, from the Capitol. And every day somebody would ask me, when are these Republicans going to stand up to Trump? When are these Republicans going to stand up to Trump? Do you remember it ever happening? It did briefly after January 6th after the Capitol yes, was actually briefly. physically attacked. And then it took, I mean, January wasn't even out before before Kevin McCarthy had gone to Mar-a-Lago and taken that picture with Donald Trump. Um, in yes. January, Nikki Haley was quoted by Tim Alberta as, you know, questioning uh, Donald Trump over this. She was has been singing a completely different tune since she has run for president. This is the vice that Republicans, you could argue they've put themselves in there. They had an opportunity after January 6th to make a break. If they didn't take that as an opportunity, I don't see it happening ever. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that I keep grappling with, and I, I don't I don't want to end this on a on a dark note, but, you know, I was at the Capitol complex on January 6th. And I, I was I was wondering about how you feel given what you saw firsthand three years ago. And it's a, honestly, it's a very personally uh, difficult thing for me um, and a professional challenge too, um, just because it is challenging to everything that I thought I knew about how our system worked and about how uh, people would feel about sort of the hallowed you know, it's kind of a hallowed temple to democracy in theory, our capital. Um, but that's not how it was treated on that day. Um, and, you know, my horror at the violence that I saw on that day was something that haunted me for a long time. And I think that the even more haunting thing is how it has really um, the, this sort of ugly version of what many people in the country now believe it to be, that it either it didn't happen or the FBI created it. Uh, calling the people who were bashing in windows and and beating police officers that protected me every day are now referred to as hostages instead of being viewed as criminals. Um, it is a very disorienting thing for me as a person who spent you know the 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 vast majority of my work days for ten years going to that building and trying to see the best in the people uh, that that were there from both parties to try and, and serve Americans. And when you think about what a general election Trump versus Biden is going to look like, and that 30% of people who think it's disqualifying if he is convicted, I think it just presages something very, very dark. Because if Donald Trump is going to win, which he is going to try to do, right, with all of his ability, he's going to have to convince most of that 30% of people that the institutions that we have are wrong, that they are um, not valid, 
And that's what he's going to put his energy toward doing, because he's going to try to convince those people that he deserves to be president. And the only way that he can do that is by tearing down the credibility of our justice system. Um, and I think that that's what you're going to see over the course of the next, uh, you know, however many nine months, eight and a half months we have until the general election. So um, as much as, you know, I love this stuff and I was thrilled to be in Iowa and it was so fun, so much fun to be in New Hampshire. It's just a different kind of election. Um, and, you know, I, I think I would just wrap up by saying every election I've covered, the candidates on both sides, they always say this is the most important election of their lifetimes. Um, that, right. <laughs> you know, that the other guy is so bad that like that they that voters must must choose um, them instead. And it's always felt like the boy who cried wolf to me. It's always frustrated me when politicians have done this in the past because they have all been people who have believed in the fundamental values of our Constitution. They are all people who would who called and conceded on the night of the election when they learned that they lost right to the other person. Uh, they were all people who kind of abided by our norms, who played inside the system, who said, OK, you know what? If I lost, I'm still going to do the best I can every day to get up and serve my country however I can. Um, that is very different this time around. And now we're going to hear both of these candidates say that this is the most important election that anyone's ever had in our lifetime. And I don't know if people are going to listen because they've been hearing it over and over and over again for all these previous election cycles. But I actually view this one quite differently than I view those other ones when I never had to ask or worry whether or not there was going to be a concession call and that the person was going mm -hmm. to acknowledge that they lost. And now the question is fundamentally different. The question is, is this person uh, going to actually abide by um, what our system says that they need to abide by? And that is a, a very scary place to be. Are they going to live in reality or are they going to construct some alternative fantasy world? Right. And, and send us back into a potentially violent place, Brian. Yes. I think it's good to end on this serious note because this is serious. <laughs> Casey, thank you so much for the conversation. Great to see you. Thanks so much, Brian. I love being with you. This episode of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair is produced by Michael May. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our engineer is Gabe Caroga. Mixing is by Bob Mallory. And I'm Brian Stelter. Thanks so much for listening. You can find me on Twitter and threads at Brian Stelter. And we'll be back next Thursday with more Inside the Hive. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. 